This is Mate, a podcast about marketing, advertising, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey, and I'm a digital strategist and entrepreneur. This is episode 12. After visiting Boston for our last episode, I've since flown to the dazzling Las Vegas, Nevada, a city of bright lights, endless entertainment, money, celebrities, sin, and splendor. And while visiting this fascinating city, I caught up with Chris Rauschnott, who is a marketing consultant and a digital content producer. He shares with us his marketing lessons from the city of fame and fortune, what big brands can learn from Vegas's approach to content marketing, and how to get featured in the Huffington Post next to the CEO of Microsoft. You'll notice I might sound a little bit jet lagged in this episode, so please forgive me, but these are the lengths I go to to get you these amazing interviews. And also note, we recorded this episode last year in 2016, so you'll hear us reference Pokemon Go and also comment about the yet-to-be-released iPhone 7. This is a really interesting reflection on how quickly things move in our industry. So without further ado, what happens in Vegas stays on Mate Podcast. Who are you and what do you do? My name is Christopher Rashnott and I am a digital influencer brand advocate, writer, blogger, and traveler. That is a, uh, that's a long and diverse list. <laughs> I like to keep it focused in a certain areas, but yes, that is a list. Right. Normally people stick to a few items, but I like to do a little bit more. Yeah, and we were talking before we had this chat that you, you focus in particular areas, and that's kind of the way you tie all of those skills together. Yes. So one of those you mentioned um, earlier on tonight was writing. Sounds like that was kind of the, the start of where um, a lot of your journey took place. So right now, uh, what type of writing do you do? I do several types of writing. So I blog, I review products, services, uh, travel experiences, and uh, celebrity appearances here in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. And then I write articles for the company selling products. And I've also recently written copy for products that are going up for crowdfunding. Mm-hmm. So a company will come to me with a technical product. Uh, typically, it's copy that's been translated, but it's not ready for sale, mm-hmm. per se. So people that would read it wouldn't understand it. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't know why they're wanting to put down money to buy the product. Yep. So I'll go in there and say, this is what you should do. Here's how you organize your paragraphs. And here's how you customize it for, let's say, the American market or the English market. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it seems like you're kind of uh, an overarching digital consultant. You help companies with various various factors of, of digital, but you also do uh, this kind of writing element for your own blogs and yes. also for other organizations like Huffington Post, um, and, uh, and you do some ghostwriting as well. And then on top of that, you do consultancy work. That's right. So a company will come to me and say, what do you think we're doing right or wrong with social? And I'll say, this is what you're doing. This is what you could be doing. I can manage it or I can write the copy for you. But typically where my strengths are is managing mm-hmm. or coming up with the social media policy for a company. Yep. So I have experience doing that. Sure. This is a, a, a mighty uh, fascinating range of skills. I want to wind back the clock a little bit and, and kind of figure out how you got to where you are today. Sure. So we're sitting in um, the Money Bellagio Hotel here in uh, Las Vegas. Magnificent view of the Bellagio fountains out the, uh, the window. It is fantastic. It cost me a fine penny to stay here. I'm sure. <laughs> but worth it, right? Totally worth Excellent. it. Excellent. This, but only because I got to meet you here, Chris. So um, Thank you. <laughs> Uh, but, um, so I, I thought it'd be interesting to kind of start with, with that point because Las Vegas is, is something that's really central to your career history and, um, and, and I wanted to kind of start with that. So you haven't always lived here. That's right. I've been here about 13 years. Yep. And one of the reasons why I moved here was CES. Mm -hmm. So that, that is the world's almost largest, maybe it is the world's largest consumer electronic show. Now it's just called CES. But I've been going to it for over 15 years. So I was flying here. And I would go with my brother, and we would talk to the companies, and we would learn about technology. Uh, At that time, we were consulting for various electronics companies at that time, selling their products, essentially. And 
we were thinking, why don't we just move to Las Vegas? There's several conventions that we go to per year. This would make it a whole lot easier. And then we get, get to meet the people in the industry here, and maybe we can get into entertainment marketing. So that was the big impetus to move to Las Vegas. So you've always been uh, technology-oriented. Yes. Um, and that was kind of what drew you here. But now you, you've kind of moved beyond that. I have. And you, and you do entertainment marketing and um, Travel tourism marketing and that kind of and stuff. Tourism, yeah. yes. So how did you get into those areas? So we were thinking, what can we do in between the conventions? Well, Vegas is all about entertainment, food, travel, and excitement. So we figured, how do we get more eyeballs on our content? Well, celebrity is definitely a way to do that. Mm-hmm. Food is another way to do that. And we were covering new food things from different chefs here many years before it was a big thing on social media. But celebrity's always been there. Yep. You know, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? Mm. That, uh, that is huge still. Yep. So Robin Leach actually lives in Las Vegas, and he writes uh, for the Review Journal about luxury and celebrity. Mm-hmm. So I've met him several times, and I figured, okay, let's cover entertainment and celebrity. So by doing that, we got massive eyeballs to our content, and then other brands that we were working with saw that. And they said, wow, you were on Good Morning America. That's huge exposure for what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So there was a huge amount of... Uh Almost like a, a, a journalism um, approach is kind of what started this off. Almost. It's like a citizen journalist. I'm not a journalist by training or trade, by chance. Um, I do go to events and I cover with video and audio and photos, so multimedia-wise. But uh, I don't have a slant, per se. I just cover what's happening. So yep. we're here with the exciting Kim Kardashian. She's here on the red carpet. She was here actually a couple days ago. Yep. We've covered her uh, arrivals and departures many times before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that always gets the conversation going, <laughs> good or bad. Yes, it certainly does. From there, you started to, uh, I guess, build a bit of a profile. Yes. And, and like, how did that transition from um, writing about what's happening here in Vegas from an entertainment perspective to getting uh, consulting work in that industry? So at about uh, late 2008... 2009, we had consulted with a few businesses here and outside of Nevada and in the entertainment and technology industries, but then we wanted to expand into travel outside of Nevada. And people that were maybe thinking about coming to Las Vegas in a downturn economy, we wanted to help the city. So how do we get more eyeballs to the city so that people travel here? So we reached out to traditional journalists, we reached out to traditional media companies and digital companies. 2008, 2009 was the transition point in time for us. And a couple years went by and had an opportunity through the CTO at that time of the Huffington Post to write an article. Uh, he had found out that I was going to be speaking at CES yep. that year. So I wrote an article. It was approved and posted the next day. Mm-hmm. And it appeared next to Steve Ballmer's article about what Microsoft was doing that year. That was a huge moment. And Steve Ballmer was at the time the CEO um, of Microsoft. That's right. That's like a, a little mini celeb moment, I suppose. For sure. Uh, that kind of kicked everything off, right? It was very cool. I took a screenshot of it and I still have it on my iPad. Yeah. I look back on it every once in a while. but <laughs> When you're having a rough day. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's fun. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's great. So, uh, so then you started to get some consulting work and work with entertainment companies here and um, social media work. And, yes. And, and that's kind of extended beyond Las Vegas. Most definitely. Yeah, now I'm working with worldwide companies. How did you grow the business? So mostly through social media contacts, mm-hmm. word of mouth, and other people that I've contacted through like LinkedIn and Twitter, for yep. instance. So... I'll meet someone at a company and maybe they're junior level this year, but maybe they'll become senior level next year. I try to keep that relationship going. So no matter what they're doing or what agency they're at, if they're in PR, I'll try to touch base with them every once in a while. So that's what I call the personal emotional connection. Mm. So the CTO of Huffington Post at the time, uh, I was contacting him through Twitter and we were talking through Twitter and he decided to leave and start his own company, Rebel Mouse. And I was actually given a beta version or beta website to go see what it does and 
give them some comments about what to change or what to add. That exploded from there for them. So congratulations to them. So what is Rebel Mouse, just for context? Sure, it's a like a content aggregation service. They'll aggregate your social media profiles and put it directly into your blog. Mm-hmm. So while you're updating Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, or Vine, it will then feed those into your website. So you don't have to create a post each time. It will do that automatically via a WordPress plugin. Mm-hmm. So it's software that you can install on the back end. And it's a free service up to a point, and then they offer additional services from there. Sure. So I wanted to ask uh, about Las Vegas. Like you spoke about why you moved here in, in the first place, and, and it was really based on your love of technology and, and CES. Yes. And then you kind of stayed because there were some opportunities that came up. But your career and, and, and your business, which you run with your brother, yes, um, 24K Media, Media. Mm-hmm. has kind of evolved now into digital consulting and, and kind of a little bit of PR and, um, and, and that kind of thing. Las Vegas, to, to me, and I, I was kind of thinking about this the other day, Las Vegas doesn't seem like the most obvious location to run that sort of a business from. Like, I would have thought, like, New York or even San Francisco, if, you know, you've got a love for technology, maybe San Francisco, or a love for marketing or advertising or PR, then maybe New York. Well, we found out that there's a lot of voices everywhere, but maybe not so much here. So we were pioneers, my brother and I, in the social media space for covering events. So that got our name out there. Then we, we were interviewed on the news a few times. We were awarded different awards for using social media to help the city during the recession period. And we wanted to help. And during those times, we weren't charging the companies to help them. We mm-hmm. just wanted to get the word out. It, it would help everybody involved. So that's what we like to do. And then that evolved into a business. So for that respect, we wanted to get into travel. And Las Vegas is all about travel. Sure. You know, our industry here in Nevada is, is tourism. Mm-hmm. So there are other established PR groups and maybe influencers in those bigger cities. We're still a smaller city in that respect. So we found a niche in this market mm-hmm. to grow. Sure. And now we've made contacts around the world because eyes are on Las Vegas again. Mm-hmm. So tell me about uh, tell me about writing. What kind of opportunities has uh, has writing given you that you may have otherwise not had? So I started articles about four hundred to six hundred words, reviewing products, tech products mostly. Yeah. Then that evolved into services, and then that evolved into experiences. And today we know that as brand advocacy or influence. So now companies will hire mom bloggers or dad bloggers or just generally certain people in that industry that talk about travel and we'll have them experience something and then write about it. We were doing that and I was doing that years before that became a big thing. Mm-hmm. That's a nice, um, a nice dovetail into the, the next topic that I wanted to touch on, which was digital strategy and kind of what, what you're recommending to companies uh, and businesses and brands uh, here in Las Vegas, but also worldwide with some of the other clients you work with. So you talked about um, brand advocacy. Yes. So let's start with brand advocacy. What, what does that mean to you, just that term? So a brand advocate is someone who has either purchased the product before or has used the product before or the service. Mm-hmm. So they're really one that has put money into it. They have skin in the game, as they say. Yep. So a brand influencer is typically one that's given product or given a service, and then they try it out and then talk about it. Sure. So that's the difference between brand advocacy and you know, being a brand influencer. Mm-hmm. Both a brand advocate and a brand influencer are speaking, hopefully positively, about a brand. They're, they're just from a different angle, right? So, well, in the rules are that you um, have to be able to speak your opinion about the product. Mm-hmm. So the pay is for to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Now, if it's severely negative, then obviously the company's got to figure out what they're doing wrong and fix it. So. You know, if you publish something like that, they may not work with you in the future, or if they do, they may have you try something else. And if you're a a traveler that travels constantly and found a a huge problem with the product or service, they're probably going to fix it. Mm -hmm. They want your information to fix their service or product. And we've seen that a few times. You know, like what works or what doesn't work. But in PR, and if you're talking about 
a product or a travel experience, they use social media sometimes as just a broadcast platform. So my brother and I have built personal brands each, and we communicate with the people that follow us and engage with us, but we engage back. So it's not a broadcast platform. We engage, and brands are learning this, but they need to do more of that. Mm. It's not just pushing their latest video, hoping for a share or a comment. It's more about, oh, I think that person might like it, so let's talk to them directly and see if they will influence their friends to share the video. Yeah. Yeah, and and we were talking earlier on tonight about connections and relationships and, and building emotion through social media. That's right. Like there's a huge opportunity, I think, for, for brands to be able to do this, but so many are just failing. Or when they do try and do it, uh, they just do like a really naff job of it. And that could be because of scale. So if they're trying to get a massive audience, obviously you want the biggest audience possible to sell anything. Um, that can be a problem mm-hmm. for an experience. So maybe someone that has done something similar in the past, maybe call upon them to experience and then talk about it. Because those connections they have, those people are already looking for that type of information to begin with. Yeah. Is what you're saying that brands, well, some brands are trying to scale uh, too quickly or in the wrong direction and they end up um, going too far beyond their core customer set? Yes. So they're expanding too far, they can't scale properly with the message that they have. Because I, I would argue you'd be better off just speaking to a smaller audience, but the right audience. Right. But there's this, there's this huge focus in marketing on what I call the vanity metrics. Okay. So um, how many Facebook likes you have, right. how many views you have on a YouTube video, yes. how many retweets you have or Twitter followers or like whatever. The, these vanity metrics that... like. They do mean something, but they shouldn't be the KPI. And I have seen this a lot. So there are many Instagrammers out there that have 10, 20, 100,000 followers, right? Mm -hmm. But then you look at the likes, and they don't equate. Yeah. So that's an obvious issue there. Or they have, you know, a small amount of followers, but they have an insane amount of likes per photo. There's inequality there. Mm Mm-hmm. So brands should look for people that maybe have a smaller audience that have a certain amount of likes that fit with that amount of followers. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to search these people and you have to vet them. You can't just pick a million followers and think that's going to help you because you don't know for sure if that's a true million followers. Yeah, yeah, whether they've bought them or whether they're just bots or right. or who knows, right? Yeah. But so. then there's this whole thing with ephemeral marketing now through Snapchat where the amount of followers maybe not be the biggest thing, but how many people you can reach through the platform via working with a brand. So if you take over their account, um, I'm sure you've seen this through Instagram and, and Twitter and now Snapchat, brand takeovers. Mm-hmm. Countries are doing this, where mm-hmm. someone who's a, a blogger about travel or the outdoors will go to a country and take over that account for the day or week. Yeah. I think there was a... I'd have to look this up. I think it might have been Sweden or Switzerland, like their tourism department. I think did it was thing. Sweden. Yeah, I think you could be right. They had a Swedish citizen take over the brand each day for an entire year. I think Great it was idea. like a. I think it was a. It was either an Instagram or a, I think it might have been an Instagram thing. Um, so you were getting like all these photos generated from like you know local communities and like just things that like typically wouldn't, like a tourism department wouldn't generate. Right. Which is great, right? It also, like, kind of galvanized and, and uh, got the, the public behind it. Because the public's creating the content. Yeah. So we're all kind of content creators now. So it should be more about what kind of content that you're creating and how moving is it? Or does it fit the message? Is it on message with, the, with what the brand's trying to do? Yeah. So if I create a, a photo that's just breathtaking... You know, I I would like that to be regrammed mm-hmm. by the company, but they should always ask you ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, some companies miss the mark, as they say, by just taking your photo and not uh, giving you credit. So that's one thing that they're doing wrong that they should not do. They should always ask up front. 
Yeah, and, and I've worked uh, with brands on similar approaches and I found the strategy that, that works well that is the least time consuming is um, if, if you're a big enough brand where you have you know cloud in the marketplace and a user has tagged you or used like a branded hashtag in the photo. Right. So they're intentionally trying to, I guess, somewhat get your attention. Yes. I've had uh, instances where we've recommended to use those photos and give credit to the person who um, created them, but not ask their permission in advance. So some profiles actually say in their bio, use this hashtag to be featured. Yeah. So you're, you're kind of telling them ahead of time. You know. Except that you, you don't necessarily know what that hashtag means before you use it in every circumstance. And that is true. So like a brand like um, Applebee's, for instance, if you use their hashtag and tag them, they'll ask you. But they'll also ask you to go to a short URL and hit agree. And then you might even get a prize later. Yep. Like maybe some dollars off on a future meal. Mm-hmm. But then you've given them permission and they'll give you proper credit. Yep. So I've seen that a lot with their brand. Yeah, but user-generated content is huge with social media, and I think that helps get people excited to create more content, mm-hmm. even if they're not going to use your photo. So, user-generated content is is one area of social media marketing or, or digital marketing that that's been quite effective in recent years. And Snapchat has been using that incredibly well with yeah. for brands. So, I was working with a brand, Hulu, and they provided tickets to a concert event here in Las Vegas. I was using Snapchat and Vine and Twitter to cover the concert over a several-day period. And Snapchat contacted me and said, hey, can we use that? And I said, sure. So I got 2 million views in 24 hours. And that yeah. was a happenstance thing. Yeah. So you just have to create the right content at the right time, and people will notice or brands will notice. Yeah. So that's, that's crazy. Uh, where were you posting that photo? Did you just post it to your Snapchat story? or I did. Yeah, okay. So it was like... I guess, meant to be somewhat public um, yes. viewing anyway. My Snapchat is set to public. So. Yeah. So how do you think they found that? Were they just like vetting people's stories within particular locations? Well, or? locations and filters. So brands will create filters for events, and uh, those brands will see that. Yeah. Or Snapchat, who I think was administrating that event with that uh, concert, they saw someone use that. And they were located there. Because you can use the filter and be outside of the concert venue, per se. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's like a JF fence, right? Right. So it all came together where they saw the, the usage of the filter, they saw the location was proper, and it was pretty good content, too. So how did they reach out to you? I got a little message inside the app. Yeah. And then I hit agree, yes. And uh, off to the races. Yeah, cool. What would you say? Two, 2.5 million views... Over 2 million views in in 24 hours. That's so crazy. They also show you how many people were taking screenshots as well. Yeah. So that was fun to see the metrics kind of spike. Yeah, that's interesting. What was the video of? It was a short clip showing the second day of MGM Grand Garden Arena. Hey, we're here for day two. We're very excited. And then they were playing music in the background. (laughs) So it was like it was the kickoff to day two. <laughs> sure, sure, okay. And it was five hours of music that day, so yeah, it's quite a deal. And for anyone who's used Snapchat, like they would know what they call them live stories. I think is yes. what they're called. Um, Those are much bigger now. Back in the day, they were all manually curated through, um, I guess, the format that that you were just describing. Yes. You know that they would kind of. Uh, tack together a few kind of inputs like a ge- uh, geographic region and a particular filter or whatever right. and then start to um, curate from there. But now it's a lot more kind of official. You can actually submit your Snapchat uh, stories to a particular feed. So when I was in New York last week, for example, uh, I was riding through Central Park, took a video uh, on Snapchat and I could um, upload to my story. Yes. And then I could also upload to the New York City story. And that doesn't, and they give you a little warning that says, you know, this uh, potentially will be public to other people. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that it will be selected, but right. basically, it's like here's permission to send it to their curation team. So they're making that a lot more official now. And and like you said, those snaps get like heaps of views, heaps, which is crazy. I wonder if there's any ways to like hack it. Like if you if you're a, a brand that's not necessarily involved with something could you somehow like insert yourself into there as long as the content's good 
I don't know. I think it's all about the numbers. So if you had enough people that were coordinating an effort at a certain time. Yeah. So like on Twitter, if you use a hashtag a certain amount of times so soon, like, like within an hour or five or ten minutes, it becomes a trending topic. Yeah. I wonder if you could... Uh, that's another thing. Sorry, I'm just going down a bit of a rabbit hole, but I wonder how many bots you would have to pay to uh, tweet a particular hashtag to get it trending. That is a good question. I've, I've never used bots, so I'm not sure. It's also not very ethical, but... <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> but neither is, you know, really hiring a bunch of people, but that's guerrilla marketing. Um, so yeah. you could do that. I guess in one circumstance... That's an interesting question. What's the, the ethical difference between like hiring people to do something versus paying for bots? So bot marketing is not ethical as far as I'm concerned. Sure. And I agree with that. Because it's either one person or one party controlling all the message. Whereas if you're hiring a group of influencers, they know the rules. They should know the rules anyway of what they're supposed to be posting and you know proper hashtag usage of either sponsored or ad yep. and go from there. That way their followers and readers know what they're posting and what they're posting for. Mm-hmm. Like it's a, it's a paid-for message. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're doing a bot as a company or hundreds of bots as a company, you're probably not going to be putting in the proper hashtags for that. And you know, Twitter has tools now to filter that out too. Say so notice if thousands or millions of messages are coming from an IP address, so just filter that out. Yeah. So let's just come back to social media marketing. Um, we kind of started off this this little section talking about what brands are doing well. Yes. What are some common mistakes that you see brands making? Well, some brands use social media as another broadcast platform. Yep. So they're just sending messages out every couple of minutes about their campaign. And their PR agency might be doing the same. That doesn't help mm-hmm. as much as it should when you're engaging. That helps even more. So maybe you engage a couple people ahead of time, either through direct message on Twitter or Facebook, and say, hey, we're, look- we're looking for people like you to help us out with this new campaign that we're doing. And here's what we're doing. And they explain it a little bit. So then the person gets an idea of what they can do to engage their audience. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, who the brand is working with can engage that audience uh, millennials are looking for travel experiences. They're not looking to buy products per se. So if they can find an Instagrammer that perfectly captures the essence of what they're experiencing, millennials, for instance, are more apt to buy that experience or that travel package. Mm-hmm. So that's one example for millennials and the use of social media for a travel experience. And there's this kind of weird tension that I've seen happening um, in social media recently between, uh, like you talked about, a lot of brands using it as a broadcast medium. Yes. But over recent years, we've seen almost all social channels have become pay-to-play if you're a brand. Mm-hmm. So if you're a, if you're a person, um, you'll see your your brothers, sisters, best friends, you know, anniversary, wedding, photos, all that kind of stuff, right? right? All these kind of life events. But if you're a brand, it's nearly impossible to get through into the, and I'm using air quotes here, the feed uh, on Facebook or Instagram now, or Twitter has a feed, unless you're paying. Because generally, content from brands is less compelling than, you know, your sister's baby or whatever, right? That is true. So, and Facebook, for instance, controls a lot of that. Functionality. Yep. As far as your newsfeed goes. There's, you know, some conspiracy theories around whether they're just doing that to make money or whether they actually care, you know, whether that's trying to improve the, uh, the, the experience for users. Now, I, I'm not, well, Facebook said a number of times that they have done surveys of users and those kinds of things to, to, to figure out what types of content people enjoy looking at and, and right. which they find boring. And consistently it shows that brand-related content performs less favorably than um, those content produced by their friends and family. And that makes sense. And life events and those kinds of things. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. But it also makes sense that Facebook needs to make money now that they're a public company. So Absolutely. over the use, years, they have uh, ratcheted down the percentage for which branded messages posted to pages will show up in a feed. And I can tell you from being a part of a digital marketing group here in Las Vegas, I talk to the travel brands and the hotel brands, 
and they have metrics that show percentage drops in even the message being seen, maybe not engaged with, but even seen yeah. in the feed. So it is a for sure thing that's happening. And now you have to pay really to even have a personal message boosted to your friends' profiles. So now we're seeing that even. Mm. So not only brands are are losing organic push, but also people as well. Mm. So in a in a in a time where uh, where brands need to pay to play on social to to get their message seen, when organic reach is almost zero. Yeah, we're we're down below a percentage point now. So how how do brands succeed then in social media marketing when there's? I guess what I'm saying is there's a tension um, between what we're talking about a couple of minutes ago of yes. uh, of brands just using this to generate reach and push a message. Whereas on the other hand, they need to spend money to generate reach. Otherwise, no one sees anything. How, right. how do, they're kind of pulling from two opposite directions. So your overall marketing strategy should include multiple points of touch for consumers. It's not just the digital marketing. It's not just the paper marketing or traditional marketing. It's not just the review from the traditional journalist. You need to bring it all together. So you need to have a blogger write about your service. You need to have an online Instagrammer that's pretty big create content for your brand. Mm -hmm. You need to have someone that's influential on Facebook. Um, I know a successful uh, social media campaign here in Las Vegas, they hired a uh, DJ, DJ Khalid, to get the key to the city, and he talks about Major Key. Mm-hmm. on Snapchat. So that was a successful social media campaign uh, for Vegas and for the uh, DJ as well. Yeah. So they did that quite well. And then there's a, a nightclub group here in town that hired him as well to come in and talk and get the crowd excited and rap a little bit for them. Can we just riff on DJ Khaled for just a minute? I think he's a very, he's a very interesting uh, uh, character. In one regard, like, I think he's an absolute genius in, in terms of the way that he's marketed him, himself. On the other hand, I don't think he has any idea what he's done. Like, I don't think he really intended for this to happen. He, <laughs> like, he's, he's like one of the biggest um, celebrities on Snapchat. Yes. And to be honest, I, I don't think he's, his music career would be as big as it was, as it is today, had he not blown up on Snapchat. Like, That's true. He wasn't that much of a huge artist until he started doing some stuff on Snapchat. And, like, he's got a very unique personality. Like. Not only that, but he's branded an emoji, really, yeah. to himself. Yeah, he has. So, the key, the key. you know, the, these emojis are, are quite uh, interesting. They evoke a, an emotional response. So, he's engaging with his followers, friends, and fans through an emoji, which, like I said, creates this emotional connection to him and his brand. So why do you think DJ Khaled has been so successful with social? Well, people uh, really have caught on to Snapchat. Uh, They like the platform. They like that it used to be ephemeral. Now you can save your memories to it, which is great for marketers. But he used it as an awesome platform for in the now. So he's at an event, he'll do his snap, and people will just view it over and over again. They love it because he's in the celebrity entertainment industries. So again, he's using celebrity and social media to further his his personal marketing, really, for yeah. himself and for his business. Do you follow him? Um, I don't, but I've seen what he's done, and he's done a great job with it. I mean, if Vegas hires you... <laughs> to advertise a city for them on Snapchat. That's amazing. They gave him the key to the city, a special key. So that was uh, that was very cool. What, is, what did the key do? Is it like literally this will get you into any building, any whatever? It's a symbolic <laughs> key, but yes. It's a key to the strip to the city. So. Yeah. So I follow DJ Khaled. And okay. He produces so much content. So, so much content. And I've got this kind of weird like tension that I've been... Uh, debating in my own mind for a little while about brands. Like, there's this huge push towards content marketing, yes. which is kind of, I guess, arisen out of um, social media mm-hmm. because social media is content. But when people say content marketing, those words, I think people think blog posts, right. um, which is n- not really um, 
all that it includes, you know, content includes social. It could include uh, influencer marketing and that kind of thing because it's generating content. Now, maybe not the brand generating it itself, but it, it is the brand is facilitating the generation of content. Right. So this tension that I think exists is like brands that generate content, whether it's social, whether it's blog posts, whether it's influencer, whatever, it's great to generate that content. But to what end? Like you need to have people viewing it. That's a, a great question. So when someone or a brand creates the content, uh, it should be created with a sense of what will this look like in a year or two for us? So I know campaigns for print marketing were just there for the day or the week. But now you have this whole online environment which is saved you know, within a Google search for forever until that database goes away. Yep. But uh, you know, that's been around for over 15 years now. Yeah. So you write something today... And maybe that will lead to something that you're doing as a brand tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So you need to make sure what you're having your brand influencers or advocates create or the people at the agency create will work for you in the future. So it can't be 100% about the one product that you're selling. It has to be about your company and overall message. That way it's it's a, a little bit of it's fresh forever, basically. It always needs to tie back to some sort of consistent brand promise. Yes. Like their mission statement. Yeah. So that's what content should should look like. But how do you drive traffic to it? And how does it generate business results? Like this is just like all these things that have been pondering and you know bouncing around in my head. So say for example you write a blog post, right? right? You you put it up on your website and it lives there. But nobody reads it unless you link to it from somewhere else. So let's roll back a little bit. What's the goal of that person writing the blog post? If you're a company or an agency, you have to have a goal first. You can't just say, write a blog post and let's see if we get any business from it. You have to have a goal first to say, we want this many views. We want this you know, blog post or article to do this or that. So how do we get to that point? So there needs to be a discussion within the company or brand and the agency to talk about that first. So does that mean you know, content that will disappear after 24 hours on Snapchat? Does that include a Vine that's engaging that you'll be posting to Twitter? Does that include a live introduction via Facebook live stream? You know, Facebook live streaming now is huge because of political events and mm. other social events that have happened yep. in the last couple of weeks and months. Yeah. Especially, I don't know if you've seen Chewbacca Mom, but that uh, exploded onto the scene. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> which was pretty crazy. Yeah, like... <sighs> like the number one most viewed Facebook live stream at that time. Yep. I think it still is. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, it, it's funny, right? It but... is funny. But you need to have a goal. You need to start with a goal first. You can't just say, let's have this blogger who's an outdoors person write about this product. Yep. And stop. Right? So the goal is... They're writing about the product for what reason? And we need to achieve X. So how do we get there? So what might an example of that be? So if you're a experienced travel company, like if you do outdoor trips, what's the goal? Do you want people to learn about your trips? Do you want people to buy your trips? Do you want people to refer the trips? So the end goal will dictate the content that will be created and or the articles that you'll write or the you know brand advocates you'll reach out to. So if it's an experience, you'll probably reach out to somebody who's either used your product or service before and understands it and can write from a position of authority and not just saying what the brand wants you to say. I, I was actually listening to another podcast um, today, in fact. Oh, I'll have to look up the name of this company that's doing this. I don't remember. So, have a look in the show notes um, and, I'll, and I'll link it up. But um, there's a company that is essentially employing their brand advocates. You won't even know what, what this is, Chris. So, the example uh, is uh, there's a uh, cruise company, which also name has escaped me. Um, and they hired this this lady who's been on every single cruise that the, the company offers. So she knows like the ins and outs of all the cruise ships and like all the activities and the, the facilities on every ship and all that kind of stuff. And they have employed her 
uh, with, with like a, a live chat on the website. So essentially what happens is someone's, you know, browsing on their website and they want to, um, you know, potentially go on one of these cruises. Would you like to speak to um, one of our customers about, uh, what, what, you know, what the, the, the cruise is like? Right. It's like, well, yeah, of course I do. Of course, right. I don't want to talk to a fucking salesperson. I want to talk to a customer. That's great. Yeah, third-party referrals are huge online. That's the whole reason behind these review sites. You have a live chat with this lady and it's like she, she knows, like, how far the the bed is from the desk in the room and like just like really like detailed questions and she's driven like millions of dollars of revenue for this company over the past year well that's something and they pay for it that's something similar to what i did uh and my brother did when we worked together with a cruise line norwegian um not a paid spot here on this podcast but just as an example we paid for the cruise right but we said if you could help us experience other parts of the ship then we can talk about it through our social channels while we're on the cruise. So mm-hmm. they agreed to it. This, they had never worked with social media people or brand advocates or influencers before, but they said they'd try it. So we said, sure, let's, let's do it. So it was kind of an ad hoc thing while we were on the cruise, but they had a couple ideas like take a tour of the ship with someone who knows the ship. And then our tweets were going out and our pictures were going out of the ship and people would ask questions like, um, how many restaurants are there? What kind of food do you like? So we would respond back live mm-hmm. during the tour. It was kind of a follow your own adventure type style that we were curating for ourselves and eventually for the brand. Yep. And we connected with the executive at that time a couple years before his change in the business. And now he's the president of the company. So our personal emotional connections from that experience discussion online has translated well for sales for him and he's used that experience at uh, cruising events to talk about how they first worked with social media uh, influencers or brand advocates yep so chris what do you think the future of digital social and pr and media and those kinds of areas that you dabble in what's the future hold so for pr wise i think people will definitely understand more about engaging with others there'll be databases of people uh, that they can reach out to more easily now it's kind of a haphazard mix Uh, clout used to be a company where you could find a number associated with a person's profile and say that might work for us let's go with them yeah it was like a measure of social influence right but i think in the future it'll be a lot more fluid and a lot more uh, up to date Um, it would take them maybe a couple days or weeks to update the score for people. I think now it'll be more like on the hour. So if a brand needs to do something next week, they'll be able to find people within a couple of days and work with them. So I think that's the future of uh, brand advocacy and influence. Yep. So that's PR. What about social? (laughs) Food is actually a, a big thing now. Twitter is launching their own content channel about food so they're getting 10 prominent chefs from around the country to talk about food and as we know buzzfeed they talk about food and they get huge amount of hits they get yeah, huge, well, they do like short videos yeah like recipes he, and stuff huge amount of views yeah. so twitter's a little late to that game but i think that once they get on that bandwagon and it is a bandwagon uh, <laughs> they will get a lot more eyeballs to the platform yeah and twitter's great for for chat, so I hope that they bring these prominent chefs on for chats, yep. not just posting photos of their of their food. Again, the push doesn't really work. You need to engage with your your friends of uh, food, yep, and other chefs too. A really exciting thing that's happening in in digital at the moment is, is the prominence of video, just in general. So you know, video is probably the the biggest growing segment right now. Yes. Um, fastest growing, but also the largest um, in terms of size. That It's also the most exciting, not just based on the numbers, but based on like the impact that it has. As human beings, we, we don't really want to read anymore. Look at the publishing industry, right? It's, it's this, it'll be non-existent in a, in a few years, um, probably. And uh, it's not to say that we don't use words. Like, I mean, words still uh, communicate and text still communicates, but... We don't want to read like a 600-word a, a article. In fact, a lot of online um, publications now 
they'll have the 600-word article, but at the very top of the article, there's a video that explains the same thing in three minutes. And I'd rather watch the video. In fact, I'd rather watch the video for three minutes than read the article for two minutes. Like, I could save myself a minute by reading it, but I'd rather watch the video because it's like just easier and more engaging and compelling. Right, and that's quality over quantity. Yeah. So 600 words, quantity, or a nicely edited video, quality. So, so video is really exciting me um, in terms of the way people are consuming it. Now, I think one challenge with video uh, is to be able to create compelling video that actually moves people. And like I said, I think the emotion that video generates is probably one of the most exciting parts of it. You know, in, in t- if you had like a, sorry, I'm going a bit of a tangent here. Just pause that thought for a moment. Um, if if you look at like the, the kind of spectrum of uh, emotion from certain media types, like at the bottom, you've probably got text followed by, um, I'm not sure whether like images or audio uh, are next. I think in some sit- situations, um, for popularity or no to be able to prov- uh to, to to compel people and and to to be you know um emotive uh, to be engaging um oh, let me hit on that engaging pokemon go right so it turns into an augmented reality situation when you're trying to catch that character mm-hmm. i think that's the future for mobile phones for mobile photography and you'll see phones with more cameras that will give you a more of a 3D space mm. to make that augmented reality more engaging, yeah. more um, more exciting for the user. Uh-huh. Do you think beyond Pokemon Go, there's opportunity for other brands to get into this space? Or oh, by all means, that Pokemon Go is just the the spark that's mm-hmm. that's going to bring this out in apps. So I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit here um, because I kind of actually believe this opinion. Augmented reality is not, not new. No, it isn't. Like, everybody thinks it's new, right? Because, oh, wow, this awesome game that I've never heard of before. Augmented reality has been around for, I don't know, 10 years? Well, even Yelp has something called Monocle, where if you hold it up, it shows you a current view of what you're looking at, but overlays companies and review labels yep. for those companies. So, yes, it has been around a long time, but it hasn't been pushed into the forefront as it is now. And more phones can handle this type of processing you need a constant connection. You need a broadband connection. You need a really good lock on your location through GPS. That technology is finally rolling out. Mm-hmm. Augmented reality, I, I don't think it provides that much additional utility. I mean, for a game like Pokemon Go, it, it, it's kind of nice and interesting because like, it shows you Pokemon characters in the real world, you know, in your living room or the Monte Carlo Hotel or whatever, right? Like... And that works for a game, but for, for like other things. like So this, these are perfect examples of how technology has taught the public how to use newer technologies. So games are, are the starting point. And we saw that with Minesweeper. We saw that with uh, Tetris. Uh, we saw that with others, um, like Solitaire on the PC. People learn how to use the mouse by playing these games. Mm. So you're teaching the public with the games that are engaging them, but in the future you use it for all sorts of things. Like who would have thought we would have used the 3d touch on the phone? Like that really doesn't provide a whole lot of utility when it rolled out. But now I'm using it all the time. I use it to swipe through apps to close apps. Yep. I don't hit my home button anymore. I'm using that 3d touch technology. So the games are teaching us how to use this, this future of augmented reality. I really struggle to see a a long-term use and benefit from augmented reality. So you need smart people and a smart company to release something that's engaging. No one's done that yet until Pokemon Go has come out. That's the first instance that's the spark that will get people excited. I see people talking about it on Facebook that are in the virtual reality and augmented reality worlds. Like, that's what they talk about. Mm -hmm. But now they're saying, wow, the general public is finally getting used to the idea of having an overlay on the real world. Mm -hmm. And your cameras and screen technology all plays a part in that. So people want more, right? They want it better. They don't want yesterday's technology on their phone. So that will drive maybe a a hologram or something in the future. Yeah. So here's a radical prediction uh, and maybe a controversial one. Pokemon Go will 
will not survive for a very long time. And I think it's because the game mechanics, like sure that it's merged all these different forms of tech like AR and GPS and kind of a range of other things and all the different sensors on your phone. That's great. But I think the game mechanics of the app are just like, they're just not that compelling. Like the objective is to walk around, catch Pokemon at just random intervals and to steal um, gyms. Right? But there's no, like, progression that you get through the game. Yet. So this is the first iteration of the game. Sure. Right? There's less than 160 characters that you can catch. There are hundreds of Pokemon. This is just the first step to get the public excited about the app, to get the people to download the app, to get them engaging. Apple's expected to make $3 billion as a side benefit to this app. That's incredible. And that's just on the iPhone side. You know, how much is Google going to make through in-game app purchases yeah. and revenue share for Pokemon Go? Yeah, well, the company that developed Pokemon Go is called Niantic Labs, which is a Google-sponsored company. I don't think they own uh, it entirely. But Pokemon Go was a, a co-venture between Google, Niantic, and uh, Nintendo. Right. I was reading something the other day, just a little bit of trivia on Pokemon Go because it's just so topical at the moment. So it's making about, uh, uh, there's some various numbers floating around, but um, I, and probably because it fluctuates, but between $1.5 and $2 million per day in in-app purchases, you know, for the coins and upgrades and, and right. such. Which is crazy, right? Per day, $2 million a day. It's nuts. But the game costs $25 million to make. So they, they basically raised funding to be able to create this game. There was a team of, I think, 40 people working on it. But they had a base too, right? Ingress was the precursor yeah. to this. Yeah, and, and it's in, thanks for mentioning that. So Pokemon Go is basically built on top of a, another game, which, which is called Ingress, um, which has been around for, I don't know, maybe like five years or something. It's been a while. Yeah. But phone technology back then, I tried to run it here in Las Vegas. It was difficult. Um, the connection would drop or it wasn't locking onto my GPS signal. Yes, we see that with today's current iPhones and Android hardware, but it's so much better now. The screen technology is so much better than it was back then. So what do you think Nintendo is going to do with Pokemon Go next? Well, they're slow to mobile. This is really their first foray into a mobile app. I didn't for... think they were going to do it. <laughs> well, they're, unfortunately, their president recently passed away and he was adamant about not creating anything outside of the cartridge console realm. So they're finally breaking with tradition. They're testing the waters. It's a huge success. But it could, you know, flare out as quickly as it rose to the top of the App Store. So we'll just have to see. It's only been two weeks. We'll give it some yeah, time. It feels like two years, just the amount of press it's had. But they're making a ton of money, so they're going to try to keep... It interesting for people. I think there's a lot coming to the game. Yeah, their servers cannot handle the load. They're launching new countries every week. So once they get the server situation figured out, um, then they can add more functionality to the game and release new characters. Yep. So Chris, what's exciting you right now? Experience marketing and uh, brand influencing is ex- exciting me right now. Um, I've been able to work with a few companies and travel with them and talk to my media partners and followers and readers about what I'm doing and what the brand is doing. So can we unpack that a little bit? There's two, there's two topics that you sure. kind of um, mentioned there. So what was the first one? So traveling with brands. Uh, Huawei is a brand from China. They have flown me out to Asia and Europe to experience not only what they're doing, but what they're designing Mm -hmm. now and in the future. So I'm reviewing one of their phones. And uh, now that they have one of their phones in the U.S., they're getting into the smartphone market more here in the United States. They're currently the number three top-selling smartphone maker. So they have a little bit of work to do if they want to catch up to Apple. But that's in their five-year plan. So that's a lot of fun. And then the brand influence and advocacy side... Uh, writing about technology and how that will work for 
Huawei and other companies that are in the technology space over the next five years. Mm-hmm. So 2020 is a real target date, not just for them, but the whole industry, in fact. And we'll see that next year at CES, what they're coming out with in the next year or the next two years. So that's exciting me right now. But、uh, mobile technology is, is、uh, going great guns, and people are looking forward to the next Apple Watch. Mm-hmm. The iPhone 7 and dual cameras on smartphones. Yep. There was,、um, there was something we were talking about the other day、uh, that I just wanted to ask you about. So, a lot of companies are looking to Apple to kind of lead、uh, innovation, or, and Apple gets a lot of press、um, about what they're doing. And I guess there's a bit of an argument like, is Apple actually the most innovative tech company, or are they kind of trailing behind Samsung, who does. Quite a lot of innovative stuff, you know.、Um, they've got curved glass screens, and, you know, Huawei's got the, the dual camera on the back of the phone. Apple does not yet. So, like, is Apple the innovative company that everyone thinks that they are? Or... Well, they used to be the underdog brand, right? They were they not did,、yeah. the world's largest known brand. They are currently. So, that's why they get the most press.、Um, they're spending billions of dollars on research and development. But there are other companies like Samsung and Huawei spending even more now than Apple on innovation. So I think within the next couple of years, maybe two, we'll see、um, what Samsung and others will be doing、mm-hmm. as far as you know, foldable phones or tablets、yeah. that can convert into a smaller phone and then expand out into a full size. Yep. We're already seeing part of that at this year's CES. Yep. I had this other question I wanted to ask you. If, if you could give one piece of marketing advice to any brand out there, what would it be? As far as digital marketing、yeah. is concerned? Yep. Engage with your, your current following.、Um, if you have people writing about your products, contact them.、Mm-hmm. Say, how can we help you? You know, not just send product and do a review, but how can we help you? With your experience with our products. Yep. And what Ford is doing, I think, is very interesting.、Uh, Ford Pass, you can call their digital concierges and they'll answer travel questions for you, even if you don't own a Ford vehicle.、Mm-hmm. That's revolutionary as far as customer service goes. So they want to get you involved with calling upon them, calling upon their service for free currently. Yeah. And、uh, let's say you are going to a new city. Well, they can help you with that. So I think that's very cool. No other company in the automotive industry is doing that. You know, OnStar, you could press the button and ask them a localized question,、mm-hmm. but they can't answer questions about travel or, or where you're headed. Ford can. That's cool. Yeah. So they're opening up stores as well around the country to help with that and around the world, but then they'll have an app that you can tap call and speak to somebody. Mm hmm. That's neat. So, they're going to be directly engaging their future buyers or just people interested in travel. And how do you get there? Well, you either fly or drive there. So, why not do it in one of their cars? They think. That's not a cheap strategy, though. No, it isn't, but it's an <laughs> interesting strategy. It is. So, it's, a, it's part of their whole mobility strategy. Yep. How do we get people from point A to point B with our brand involved somehow? Right? Uber's out there. They're getting people from point A to point B, maybe in a Ford vehicle, but maybe not. Sometimes not. Maybe it's in a Prius, right? So they want to get their name out there through the service. I think it's very early on, but if you engage the people that are looking for help, I think that will be big for them in the future. So you're building a base. Yeah, it's interesting that you say、uh, engaging with people because I think companies don't quite engage enough with people who complain. And they are some of your most vocal customers.、Uh, and then brands also don't engage with, in fact, a lot of brands totally ignore some of their, their top brand advocates that are like, you know, shouting from the rooftops, I love this brand because X, and they just go totally unrecognized. Right. So you look at some Twitter streams from brands. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh,、uh, can you contact us via email? There's no like retweets of positive experiences on their Twitter streams. Yeah. There needs to be a balance. So, people within these agencies that are handling these brand accounts need to realize yes, it's a customer service platform, but mix it up a little bit.、Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. have a little bit of your message, help out the people that need assistance, but then also help out those that are shouting, like you said, from the rooftops about your brand. Yeah. Yeah, just don't ignore people. Right. <laughs> All right, I think that's a nice uh, kind of lesson to wind up on. Cool. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Mate. A few very quick thank yous. Firstly, thanks to Chris Rushnot for coming on the show and for showing me some of the amazing sights on the strip in Las Vegas. Editing and mixing for this episode was by Josh Armour from Armour Pod Productions. The Mate logo is by Courtney Carmen, and the music is by Nine Inch Nails used under a Creative Commons license. Show notes for this episode can be found at matepodcast.com slash the number 12. And a big thank you to Dan Sparks for your very kind iTunes review. If you enjoy the show and haven't yet left a review on iTunes, please do. It, it really does help. This was Made Podcast and it was recorded in Las Vegas, Nevada, USA, but it was made with love and a little bit of Red Bull in Melbourne, Australia. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey, and this was a Jaffrey product. Bye for now. There was a really funny headline I read the other day. Pokemon Go has um, more users than Facebook, Twitter, whatever, and Tinder. The obvious conclusion is Pokemon is more popular than sex.